The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to a new week, another uh, string of great programs ahead of us. Looking forward to all of them. Thank you for joining us as we kick this week off. I hope you had a great weekend. I don't know what you would have done because nobody can seem to do anything, at least in my part of the world. But either way, I hope it was a good one. I had a fun time uh, Friday night with Booze, Brews, and Bros. Had another good time Saturday night with uh, movies with the bros. And, of course, if you joined us for that, you know, Valdo and I had a fun time with a small independent film called The what the Ironbound Vampire, I think it was. And I can't promise we'll do this every Saturday, but we're going to try to do it occasionally. Anyway, we have fun with it. And with the Halloween season here, uh, it's the most appropriate time to do this type of thing. Everybody's thinking horror films and all of that and finding cheesy horror films to have fun with. Um, Probably one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) You know, there are two other things that are my favorite things to do as well. One of them is uh, learn about uh, musicians, rock and roll musicians. You know that I'm a huge Beatles fan, but you also know that I'm just a music fan in general. In addition to being a musician, I play a lot of the music of the artists that I happen to enjoy talking about. So you know that about me. You also know that I have a passion for the paranormal as well. Uh, So you take those two things together and you get our guest tonight, Susan Messino. Susan is an author. She's a rock and roll historian. And she's also a paranormal researcher. And we'll be talking about things like, well, we just lost Eddie Van Halen. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Freddie Mercury and Queen because uh, Susan just did um, an interview about Freddie Mercury and it was fascinating, and I heard it, and I'm hoping we'll have a chance to talk about that a little bit. But Plus, we'll also talk about her experience in the paranormal. So this will cover the gamut of the things that I enjoy talking about most here on the program. Um, what? Oh, you know, I was, I was watching the news earlier, and say what you want about politics, it doesn't matter. But the bottom line is I'm getting tired of hearing people who disagree with a point of view or don't want to hear a point of view, or not necessarily a point of view. They don't want to hear uh, a current, event, current events item, calling it a conspiracy theory. I think that does a disservice to people who come on in this program and present conspiracy ideas. Because we all know that many of those ideas in the past have turned out to have some merit. And it's the whole conversation, it's the ability for us to talk about these things freely that allows us to get to the bottom. You know, some of them we clearly find out, yeah, that's that's a bit nuts. That's, you know, there's no real basis of fact for that. So therefore, let them, you know, let the people believe what they want to believe, but I'm not going down that road. But then there are others that have a lot of validity. There are some that are borderline com- uh, completely accurate that uh, people throw a conspiracy theory label on Therefore, they can they feel justified in, in silencing those with the, that opinion. And we've we've seen that with Facebook and Twitter quite extensively. Everybody should be upset about that, whether you agree politically or not. You should really be bothered by that censorship, because if you even though you may disagree with whatever, you know, recent uh, censorship may or you may agree with whatever recent censorship has happened, particularly when it comes to this covid conversation. Next time, it might be you. It might be your side of the of the uh, discussion being silenced. Uh, That's not the way it works here. Here we have conversations and we let people present arguments and we are adult and mature enough 
and intelligent enough to make our own decisions, at least for the most part. Anyway, so that's my rant for this uh, week as we kick it off here. We're, what, uh, eight days away from Election Day, so all this stuff is heavily on my mind. We, um, we've got a lot of rights we need to keep fighting for. Um, but that's not what we're going to talk about with our guest tonight, Susan Messino. As I said, she is an author. She's a rock and roll historian. She's also a paranormal researcher. And we're going to bring all that together with some fascinating, fascinating conversations tonight. And I'm looking forward to it all. And we have a lot to get to, so I'm not going to waste any more time. I am going to uh, take a quick break here, get our guest ready, and uh, begin the conversation. It's beyond reality. We will be right back. Hey gang, JV here. You know that great nutrition can lead to a great life. Healthy, happy, rewarding. But that nutrition simply cannot be found in the foods we eat alone. Take a minute and assess your health, the way you feel, the way your family feels, the way your kids feel. Health is more than just feeling well. It's also making sure you have a strong immune system, especially in these trying times. Vitamins aren't enough alone. In fact, they have to be the right vitamins, the right supplements made from the most effective ingredients. Otherwise, they don't do the job. It makes the world of a difference. There's a new website you can visit that'll help you navigate these ideas and guide you to better health. There's no obligation. Just visit MyHealthRocksNow.com. That's MyHealthRocksNow.com and start feeling better today. Thank you for being with me tonight. Looking forward to this conversation very much. Only because, well, not only because, there are a lot of reasons I'm looking forward to it. But one of the things that makes it really exciting is I'm not really sure which direction we're going to take because there are so many possible directions we can take. What I do know is our guest tonight is a returning guest. Susan Messino is with us. She is an author a rock and roll historian, and a paranormal researcher. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of things that relates to all of those topics. But Susan, welcome back to the program. Great to have you with us again. Thanks, JV. Thanks for having me. When I'm trying to remember when you were on last. Was it maybe a year ago or so? I'm not quite sure. It's been about that. Yeah, I'd have to look back, but it's been a while. Was that when you released the Secrets of the Universe book, or what? had that already been out when we talked about it? I think it had already been out, but that's basically what we talked about, because I updated that, and that came out in 2018. I remember that conversation. I had a great time, and I have always been fascinated with your work, too, because I love the fact that not only you were an author, and you've written about all the things we're going to be talking about, but you're a rock and roll historian and a paranormal researcher. These are two things that don't often collide into a profession or, or maybe uh, uh, you know various professions that come together under the heading of an author, but you've done it very, very successfully. But what came first for you, the interest in the paranormal or the interest in rock and roll? Oh, my goodness. That would be hard to say because <laughs> I grew up in the business. Um, my parents owned a ballroom when I was born. So I grew up watching musicians uh, load in and out, fell in love with the music mm-hmm. right away because that was really my entertainment. And then around five years old, my um, grandmother, you know, we would always do our prayers every night. She would tell us stories. And one night she told us about how her mother came back from the dead to say goodbye to her. Wow. And uh, and that was it for me. I mean, <laughs> sure. from, from that night on, I was like, I want to figure out how that happened. It, it was it good or was it bad, and will it ever happen again? Just so I'm clear, that, that experience happened to your mom, and she told, told you the story? Or my grandmother, yes. It was my grandmother. Well, okay, so your grandmother's mother visited her? Yes. Oh, okay. Exactly. Wow. Had, had you had any experiences like that as a child? Oh, lots. 
<laughs> lots and lots. Um, when I was really little, we lived up north in uh, northern Wisconsin, which is um, so spiritual, you know, so so many um, sacred, so much sacred land up there. And around the ages of maybe between five and seven or eight years old, I used to go to sleep at night, and as I was falling asleep, I would have out-of-body experiences, even though I didn't know what they were oh, at wow. the time. Mm-hmm. And then I had, uh, and I don't know what you want to call them, but I had beings that would come into my room at night and tell me things. Let me ask you this. What do you want to call them? Probably my spirit guides, I would think. Okay. But I, they irritated me because they would talk to me, and I would sit up in bed and yell at them and say, Be quiet. My parents are going to hear you. I'm curious. Uh, we've we you know we've ha- heard stories like this from other guests, and some take the approach that these are actually some type of extraterrestrial, some type of alien visitation, and some take the uh, opinion and the approach that no, these are spiritual in na- nature. And I'm hearing you say it's more of the spiritual variety. It to me, it seemed that way as a child because I, I was not afraid of them. It, there was no fear involved, but it was um, it was kind of annoying to me, actually. <laughs> You're bothered by I don't have time for this, beings. Go away. Did, were, do you remember <laughs> you go what, to sleep. Leave do, me alone. Do you remember what they were saying to you? I mean, was it advice? Was it questions? Was it just mumbling? Do you, do you remember it all? It, you know, actually, I don't remember. It was kind of like mumbling. It was like I knew they were talking to yeah. me, and I could hear them, but I can't remember exactly, like, you know, any phrases or I, all I know is that they were irritating to me because I was afraid I'd get in trouble for talking to people when I was supposed to be sleeping. So rock and roll hit you uh, at, at a very young age because you were kind of in the business with your parents. Your parents had a, a club and, and you were kind of right in the thick of it there. Uh, you also had paranormal experiences and heard paranormal stories, stories from family members, which made you very, very curious at a young age. So you've got these two passions uh, as you're growing up. Did you find that one helped or influenced the other in any way? I think that they they definitely intertwined um many, many years ago because, uh, you know, I have prophetic dreams and I have had um, just the, a, an amazing ability to be at the, in the right place at the right time kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was in the music business for decades. And I used to say, um, when I got into my 50s, I was going to, at the time, I wanted to be a paranormal, um, uh, you know, like a licensed paranormal researcher. Okay. Parapsychologist. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. And uh, so I thought, you know, I'd have I'd go to school and all of that. Well, it never happened that way. And when I got into my fifties, I ended up um, meeting with a couple of girls that are involved in the paranormal. They're psychic mediums, and uh, they invited me to a conference. And pretty soon, I was doing speeches at the unexplained research con- um, conferences in Wisconsin. Um, I did, uh, um, you know, actual speeches on synchronicity because my whole life is is all synchronicity, and and so with you know people like you know Bon Scott dying after you know I knew him for almost three years and he died and then he starts you know visiting me in my dreams and I just it, it, they just intertwine constantly. Wow. Uh, you may have just answered this next question, uh, but I, you might have other uh, answers that you can give as well. But have you had any paranormal experiences that relate to your intimate knowledge of rock and roll and rock and roll personalities? Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say, you know, Bon Scott is mm-hmm. is one of the main guys because um, 
I knew him before he passed away, and then a few years later I dreamed about him. And over the years, especially when I got the deal to write the story of ACDC, Let There Be Rock, back in 2004, um, Bon was definitely my guide for that. He showed up in my dreams. Um, he haunted me while I was writing. It was pretty hilarious, actually. <laughs> so he's a, he's a bit of a playful haunt. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. No, he's he's something else, I'll tell you. He, he was really messing with me a lot. And uh, I had to tell him to be quiet because he I would write late at night while my son was sleeping. And he would, um, you know, hang out around the computer and, and do stuff, you know, make noise. Or one time my husband thought I was yelling for him to come upstairs. And he comes, he was in his recording studio and he comes upstairs all miffed, like, you know, what do you want? And I'm like, what do you want? I'm writing, leave me alone. And he's like, well, you've been calling me for a half hour to come up here. And I'm like, no, no, I didn't. Wow. So, <laughs> so he leaves. And just a second later, somebody in my ear just goes, ah, like, ah. And, and I turned around thinking my husband was messing with me, mm-hmm. and, uh, and no one was there. And I just looked around, and I said, Bon, okay, you can read, but don't make any noise. <laughs> so All right, so around a lot. You, you must be uh, maybe solely qualified to answer this next question, which was um, presented so aptly by the Righteous Brothers. Is there a rock and roll heaven? Oh, God, there should be. There better be. <laughs> I'll fin- be very mad if there isn't. Yeah, and to finish the line, I bet they have a heck of a band or whatever the, whatever the lyric is. Um, with with knowing some of these uh, rock and roll icons that have passed on, have you made efforts to contact them? Or in the case of Bon Scott, did it just, you know, you were just minding your own business and he, he's messing with you? Well, Bon was, he's always in my, my prayers. He always was. But until the book deal came through, he really started making his presence known. And I had never written for a, a big publisher. It was a very big job for me to cover 32 years of history of a band that, you know, most everybody knows more more about than I do. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many experts out there. So I was in a, uh, under a lot of pressure, and Bon was definitely there. And he always, when I call him in, he's always around, or Malcolm now, um, God bless him, but, yeah. but he makes his presence known. And Eddie Van Halen actually uh, haunted us the weekend before he passed at the Sheridan Hotel. Oh, okay. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but I've got to ask you, he haunted you bef- the weekend before he passed? Yes. Yes, I do believe it was him. Wow. What happened that, uh, that convinced you it was him? Well, we... Um, Let's see. <laughs> On uh, October 2nd, the night before my birthday, I hosted a book signing at the Sheridan Hotel in Madison. And they had I'm sorry, is redone. That, is that Madison, Wisconsin? Yes, Madison, okay. Wisconsin. Okay. And uh, this is the same hotel that back in 1978, Van Halen pretty much destroyed the seventh floor. <laughs> and then they dedicated, uh, one of the dedications on the back of their second album is to the seventh floor of the Sheridan. So we were there for a book signing and my birthday and the unveiling of the Roth Room, which is a conference room on the seventh floor. And they, all the displays, they have tons of things framed, old articles I sent them, pictures, that sort of thing. And at some point, those will be put out on the, into the hallway so everyone can see them. That, that comes into the Sheridan, goes up to the seventh floor. But uh, when I first walked into the Roth Room, it, I just blurted it out. I said, oh, my God, Eddie and Alex are going to hate this. 
and mm-hmm. <laughs> and I I didn't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but it, it kind of should be called the Van Halen Room, if you know what I mean. Right, right. So the first night we were there, uh, we had the book signing. It was very, very well done, like under 20 people. Everybody wore masks. It was really nice. They had a big birthday cake. And so that night I'm trying to go to sleep, and I, we kept hearing things. I was there. We had two rooms, three other girlfriends with me, and we kept hearing things. And I said that Eddie is haunting us. I'm thinking Eddie Money because Eddie Money had already passed, and yeah. Eddie had played, you know, I had partied with him at the Sheridan. Mm-hmm. He stayed there several times. So I kept calling this guy Eddie. So the first night I'm trying to go to sleep after the book signing, I cannot sleep. And somebody comes up and breathes into my left ear, like really audibly, and where you could feel the breath on your skin. And I'm so tired at that point, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, really? Okay, that's, that's real nice. All right. Whoever you are, you need to leave or climb in and help me go to sleep. And that was it. I went to sleep. (laughs) The next day, I mentioned it to my friends, and we had a laugh over it. And then the night of my birthday, we picked up food. We hung out. It was just the four of us. It was a very fun night, but we stayed up super late. And I'm in bed. My girlfriend's in the bed next to me. And in the the dark, in the middle of of quiet, she lets out this blood-curdling scream. And if she wouldn't have burst out laughing, I would have been out the door so fast. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> I mean, when someone screams like that, and then yeah. she's laughing. And I'm like, are you all right? And she's like, well, yeah, yeah, I'm just laughing because I woke myself up screaming. And I said, well, what did you scream about? And she says, I, there's some guy in here. He shoved his face in my face and scared the hell out of me. And again, I said, Eddie, I said, Eddie, just go to bed. Leave us alone. And then 48 hours later, Eddie passed. And it was just so strange. And like the day that I checked out, I'm driving out of the parking lot, jump comes on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling that Eddie might have had a little bit of fun over the weekend before he chose to leave. So I have, I have to ask you, as a paranormal, put your paranormal researcher hat on for a minute here. Um, do we have an explanation or an understanding how someone can haunt before they pass? I assume it has to do with something with out-of-body experiences or maybe even straddling the line between life and death. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that especially with, with Eddie, who had fought you know, uh, with his health for a long time, um, I think that when you're getting ready to transition, um, a lot of people see people that, that right before they die, like they show up in their dreams or they thought they, you know, they heard from them or somehow got a message from them. And I, I, I truly believe that, you know, when you're ready to cross over, you might do all kinds of things. Like, you know, you might have a few stops to make. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we also know that, you know, there are people that have had near death or out of body experiences where they do cross and then they come back. Um, so, you know, again, that's kind of a, in my mind, a straddling of, of that, veil of between life and death let me just take a kind of an aside here and ask your opinion about something um you know we've all heard of the 27 club uh eddie van halen was not uh, 27 when he passed away but a lot of really important and iconic musicians have been 27 when they've died way too young to leave this earth do you have any thoughts on why is there something about being at that level of a genius and b musical su- success that that makes you a candidate to die like that it is interesting because if you're into numerology our lives um go in nine year cycles okay 
So one to nine, and, and, you know, for fun, sit down and write down however age you are. Write down 19, 18, 27, 36, 45. And at those times of your life, there's going to be a big change, and especially 27. That is a very big turn from going from your youth into, you know, your maturity. And uh, a lot of people have big life changes at 27. So it's not surprising to me that a lot of the really great people that were, I always say they're too good to be here for that long, they choose to leave at 27. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, obviously. Um, You brought up the Van Halen discussion. I wanted to spend some time talking about that. Um, Obviously, we lost a music legend, uh, a a guitar genius. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your... Um, I guess your, your, your relationship with Van Halen, you spent some time with them. Well, I was, I was very lucky. I worked for a local paper in Madison, Wisconsin. And back in the day when we got albums in the mail and we got this red album with four songs on it from a group in, in California, a couple brothers named Van Halen and, uh, early 1978. And I remember my editor, Michael, put the uh, record on the turntable, and that was it. I mean, I had heard and seen so many bands up to that point, and when I heard Van Halen, that, you know, like I said this in my book, it was like putting on rose-colored glasses. The, the world wasn't the same tint anymore. And we went nuts for Van Halen. So they get booked on their first tour with Montrose and Journey, They're supposed to play the Orpheum Theater in Madison in March of 78, and the Orpheum Theater decides they don't want three bands. They bump Van Halen off the bill. So we find out at the paper, and my editor, who I was the associate associate editor, and I always took care of all the tickets, photo passes, interviews, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I handled all the record companies. And Michael said, call Warner Brothers and see if you can get it booked into a club. I'm like, Okay, why not? You know, so I called them and I gave them a couple phone numbers, and sure enough, they booked him into the Shuffle Inn on March seventh, nineteen seventy-eight, and uh, it was crazy. Um, that night, I ended up hanging out with the band. Um, Eddie played the first song he ever learned on his little uh, guitar with his little amp um, pipeline. He was super sweet. They were all really sweet, but really crazy. Alex was—he was something else. <laughs> And uh, so after they played that night, I ended up going to the Sheridan to party with them. And that night, Alex um, kind of taught, I want to say taught me, but it was kind of a forced lesson in how to smash your head in in an elevator door. (laughs) It's important to know that. It's really important to know that, especially if you're going to hang around rock and roll uh, legends. You need to know how to do that. Exactly. Yes, I had no choice, basically. It was just him and me, and he wasn't going anywhere. So So. you're going to have to remind me, uh, the 1978 tour, was that after the release of their first album? Yes, it just came out, and actually, we put them on the cover of our paper. It came out two weeks later. We took uh, bundles down to the beginnings in Schaumburg, Illinois. They played a party for the radio station, The Loop. And we ended up being the first paper slash magazine to put Van Halen on the cover in the United States. Wow. Um, But just my two cents on this whole thing is I believe that that it was their best album. But that's just my opinion. Oh, by far. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about the importance of Eddie Van Halen as a guitar player in rock and roll. Wow. He, He was 
you could say, probably one of the top five guitar players in history. He changed everything about how you played, how you presented, you know, the guitar. He uh, yeah. he did so much stuff, you know. He changed up his guitar to, to suit him, um, and then they called it like the Frankenstrat or something. It was part of a Gibson and a Fender. Um, he had an old uh, um, bomb, like a bombshell, <laughs> actually a bombshell from the 1940s. He had that gutted out and all of his gear was in that. A bomb shelter? It, it, a bomb, like an actual bomb oh, that they would drop oh, like, out of a plane. Like the housing, like, like the housing of a, of a bomb? There you go, oh, yes. Wow. yes. The okay. housing of a bomb. Um, he had that and uh, and he was just, he was beyond amazing on guitar. There mm. was just no one like him. Yeah, it's so true. And, and and not just was he amazing, but he actually just changed the way the instrument was used in, in rock and roll in a lot of ways. Um, uh, his style was so distinct and so uh, unique that it was instantly recognizable. And when he would play guitar for other artists' tracks, like, you know, famously Michael Jackson, um, you know, you could it would it would change the the whole effect of of the song um because he put his his signature guitar work in it oh absolutely and he did um the solo and beat it for free with no um credit his wow. name wasn't on it and that solo makes that song in my view i think that oh, is it's, it a, it's an amazing would never be the same without it that's yeah. for sure <laughs> yeah why did why did van halen as a group have so much trouble uh, you know, they I don't know how many albums they made with uh, David Lee Roth, but it was the first couple, maybe three or three or four. I'm not even sure. Uh, but then they seemed to have trouble. You know, we had the Sammy Hagar um, version of the band, and it just seemed like in the later years they kind of struggled to find someone they felt they were comfortable with. I think David Lee Roth came back for, if not any recording, but a tour or something. I don't know. You know better than me. But why did they have such trouble with that? I think there was a lot of tension between Eddie and David. What I've read and and what I've learned over the years that, you know, David was kind of the star, but then Eddie became more of of the star of the band, and I think that that caused a lot of tension. I also know that um, Alex and Eddie both fought alcoholism for many years. Yeah. And that had a lot to do with it. So it was it was sad because um, you know they did very well with Sammy Hagar, but there's nothing like Van Halen with David Lee Roth. I you know I just consider it a completely different group. I mean, it sounded different, it, it felt different, the style was different, the approach to the music was different. Um, so yeah, it, it was you know they had their success with Sammy Hagar, but it it wasn't the same band to me that produced you know Eruption and Running with the Devil and Ain't Talking About Love and Ice Cream Man and all those great songs. Yeah, you can't. You just can't replace that. Diamond Dave is this another one of a kind. And when they were a group in the beginning, it was magic, complete yeah. magic. Yeah. And so you said you told me something here that I wasn't aware of. So when the even though the group had the last name of Alex and Eddie, obviously Van Halen, mm-hmm. um, David Lee Roth was kind of the star when they started out. He was. The, I mean, obviously he was the front man. Right. Yeah, he was, and the, and the the record company really portrayed him as the the face of the band, you know, they um, they sent out postcards with, <laughs> I think I still have it somewhere, um, it's David with no shirt on with black uh, leather pants and he's bent all the way backwards, um, kind of hard to describe, but 
interesting pose. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, he, he was definitely um, pushed as, you know, he was the front man. He was the face of Van Halen. And do you think that as they became successful, and I think not only were they successful commercially, but, you know, mu- uh, critically, musicians and music, music critics would listen to the music and say, that is amazing guitar work they have there. Do you think that that, you know, fed uh, Eddie the belief that he needed to receive more of the accolades and it wasn't David Lee Roth that was uh, really dri- the driving force in the band? I think that probably started it. I know that when um, Eddie hooked up with Valerie, too, Mm-hmm. That really launched him into, you know, all the gossip magazines and covers of magazines, and I, I don't think David liked that at all. So David had some jealousies, maybe, that as Eddie got more attention. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I, I, you know, I know that, you know, again, those are great songs, and then it, uh, David Lee Roth goes on and records, I'm Just a Gigolo, or whatever that was, which was a fun <laughs> song in its own right, but it's just an odd choice to go from a rock and roller as he was to, to I'm Just a Gigolo. Well, I know, and, you know, he had a couple of great albums, though, when he had Steve Vai on guitar. Yeah. And uh, um, the Bissonette Brothers on drums and bass, and, you know, I thought that a couple of his albums were really good. Was I right? Did he come back to the band at some point? Yes. More yes, recently? they did a tour. I think it was, gosh, I want to say 2007, and there might have been something more recent that I know that they did that Jimmy Kimmel show, and that I'd have to look that up. But, um, yeah, he did come back. Did, did you see any of those performances, whether live or in some other form? I did see him up in uh, Oshkosh at Rock USA in 2013, and um, they were so far away it was hard to tell they were on stage. How'd they sound? <laughs> I couldn't tell. Oh, you, oh, you couldn't even... It was, you, uh, it was even... that far away. Oh, it was, wow. It was really um, a very disappointing setup. Wow. <laughs> that would be disappointing. How did you... How did, was it through the paper that you became... Um, so familiar and friendly with so many iconic rock stars, not just Van Halen, others too. Oh yeah, no, it was it was the paper that started everything for me, and the fact that uh, I was there, you know, the late seventies is when I started out, and between seventy seven and nineteen eighty, all these bands, you know, Cheap Trick, Journey, Van Halen, ACDC, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. That we were right there. You know, we were reporting, and and in those days, you know, there was only radio, TV, and print. So print was pretty powerful. That's right. So it was was a hell of a time to be alive and be writing about it. So back to the question, though, about Van Halen and its difficulty to to remain, I guess, I don't know if consistent is the word, but, you know, having some uh, changing uh, names in the band. You know, you had Eddie and Alex. They stayed there, but, um, oh, oh, I'm blanking on the bass player's name, and I know it. Michael Anthony. Michael Anthony. He left the band, right? He didn't stay. Yes, he did, yeah. He went to, to play with Sammy Hagar, actually. Oh, is that what happened? Mm-hmm. Yep, oh, wow. they're still playing together. Oh, wow. Didn't realize that. Okay, well, at least he's playing. Good. That's good to know. He was the one that used to do the high harmonies, didn't he? Wasn't he the high yeah. voice? Yeah, he did. He had quite the voice. He does have quite the voice. Yeah. So um, I know the answer to this question, um, but um, Susan, tell me, what's the best Van Halen lineup in your estimation? Alex, Eddie, Michael, and David. Yeah, that'll never change. Yeah, <laughs> for it's hard. me. Yeah, it's hard to argue. It's hard to argue with that. I, you know, and I, I have to say too, when when they introduced Jump, uh, mm-hmm. that out was in nineteen eighty four was the album. Um, I kind of that's that's when I kind of started to lose my 
interest because they started to get synthesizer-y, you know, you know, I don't know. Right. They kind of changed it for me there. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I was, I love that song, but yeah, I know exactly what you mean about how it went more keyboards. Well, the early stuff was just so raw and it was so guitar heavy. I mean, things like Panama, Hot for Teacher, um, and again, going back to that first album, that stuff was electric. Oh God, yeah. I mean, the best. You, you, you. Like you said, their first album. You just can't get better than that. Tonight, we're talking with Susan Messino. She's an author, a rock and roll historian, and a paranormal researcher. She's got many books that cover those topics, including the story of ACDC, family tradition, rock and roll fantasy, and the secrets of the universe. That book is the book that we talked about when she was on the program. About a year ago, uh, we think it was, although my memory just doesn't uh, work as well as it used to. I can tell you that. So I never, the whole concept of time to me is crazy because, I mean, we're looking at uh, the year 2021, Susan. It's like right around the corner, and I'm still trying to figure out what happened to 2005. It's just crazy. (laughs) It's insane. But anyway, um, you know, you did uh, an interview very recently on Coast to Coast, a program that I listened to religiously uh, with George Norrie, and you talked about Freddie Mercury and Queen. What what a fantastic group, and what an amazing personality in Freddie Mercury. Oh, he was really some something else. You know, another incredible icon and uh, did so much for rock and roll and yeah he he was an amazing person and i don't think you'll ever see anybody that sings like him he um let me back up here the film bohemian rhapsody brought an attention and the spotlight to freddie mercury's work specifically but the but queen music in general you know queen i i'm going to say this uh I was a Queen fan before it was popular. I, in high school, I was a huge Queen fan. Um, in fact, I had a band in high school, and you know, we used to sit around and listen to Queen music and just dream about the day we could actually be talented enough to play it. And um, you know, I don't think that day is here yet because they were amazing. But uh, the the film Bohemian Rhapsody brought Queen. Not that they were obscure at all; they never were. But I almost think they were a little forgot forgotten, kind of almost, you know overlooked in their importance in a way. Do you think that to be true? Oh, I I totally agree with that. And the fun part about Bohemian Rhapsody is that it blew all the records, uh, you know, box office records for a rock and roll movie, which is wonderful because, you know, they most times they shy away from that sort of thing. And once Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, I believe the the gentleman that portrayed Freddie, he got the Golden Globe Award and they won Academy Awards. And and it it opened doors for, you know, Rocket Man, the story of Elton John. Um, There's one being done now on, I think it's I want to say the Ramones or the Sex Pistols. There's a movie being done on them. So, so it really opened the doors for a lot of people <laughs> that uh, we should see movies about, you know, because of the history and what they contributed to music. A lot of people don't know about it. How much of the film Bohemian Rhapsody was fact versus creative license? Mm, it's hard to say. I'd say, you know, probably 50-50. I mean... You can only do so much in two hours, right. you know, or two and a half hours when you're trying to tell somebody's complete life story. But I think they did really well with it. Um, I I do believe some things were a bit, you know, glossed over, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all movies do that. You know, they can only cover so much. 
Um, there are a lot of things about Freddie Mercury that would make him an interesting subject for a film. Uh, obviously, he was an amazing talent. Um, he was also um, part of um, the gay community, which was unusual, not unusual for its time, but it was not nearly as well ex- as ex- accepted or understood as it might be now. Uh, he died of AIDS, one of the early celebrities to uh, contract that disease and die from it. Um but when you put all that together, how would you def- describe or define Freddie Mercury as a person? And why w- why were we so fascinated about his life that we made that film so successful? Well, I think, you know, his talent alone, his ability to sing, he had um, almost a four-octave voice, uh, his writing ability, he wrote music in all genres, you know, it was rock and pop and a little bit of disco and and so many things and and personally he was he was a very kind and very soft spoken person compared to what you saw on stage and he was very low key about his lifestyle and you know um his sexual orientation he honestly didn't even admit to being gay i believe until right before he died right and he didn't admit, according to the film. This is, you know, all I, all, the only reference I have is that he didn't really even admit it to himself right away. Right. Yeah. No. He, um, you know, he was with a woman. He was engaged to her. Uh, I believe Mary. Her name is um, for about six years, and they split up. But he remained very close to her. And actually, when he died, he left most of his estate to her. Wow. So and and he told her that he said um, if we would have been married, you know, if he hadn't been gay, she would have ended up with it all anyway. I so, uh, I fully respect the talent of Freddie Mercury, but I also believe Queen is one of those bands like the Beatles, where the um, the whole is uh, greater than the sum of its parts. Together, they made magic that they probably couldn't have done individually. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, yeah. I think it was a. a Again, like you said, like the Beatles or anyone else, when you get that perfect mix of people and the fact that they could, you know, compose the way they did. I mean, so many cool things. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody, the song, you know, six-minute song, and the record company didn't know what it was about, and they didn't want to release it because it was too long. And now, you know, you hear it every day on the radio. I always get a laugh because well, I, it's like, yeah, it's six minutes. <laughs> I always find an appreciation for that. And you mentioned, um, you know, the days when they would send albums to you when you worked at the newspaper. I was working in radio in those days, and they did the same thing for the radio stations. You'd get a box every day with four or five albums in it with the new releases from all the record companies. And... Um, you know, and and there were some concerns about playing songs of any length. Uh, you know, you know, three minutes was the, was kind of the thing you wanted to be around uh, to make timing work out and not get people bored. But when Bohemian Rhapsody was released, it really wasn't that successful. It didn't become a success until later. Now it's become an anthem. Oh yeah, no, and and uh, the movie Wayne's World is what really you know helped out Queen quite a bit with the you know them playing the song Bohemian. Bohemian Rhapsody in the car, you know, and uh, Mike Myers and his buddies are jamming along and everything, and and that really boosted the visibility of that song. Yeah, and I think it charted then. It may even gone to number one. I don't know, something like that. I know it charted, and then it charted again. It's like charted four times or something mm-hmm. like that. It's 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 quite an amazing piece of work. But you know, you we talked about Eddie Van Halen and we talked about guitar players, and I think Brian May is one of the most amazing guitar players, not just for his skill on the guitar, but for his skill in guitar orchestration. 
and mm-hmm. ranging. You listen to those Queen songs, there's so much subtle, almost symphonic or- or- orchestration of the guitar work that it puts it in a league by itself. Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, he's, they're all amazing. I mean, Queen is, I think, one of the greatest bands ever. Yeah. So. <laughs> you know, there was another documentary about Queen on that I'd caught, maybe how many years ago now? I don't know, five, six years ago, I think it was. Maybe a little longer than, I don't know. But it was on, you know, uh, HBO or something. And um, I watched it several times because it fascinated, fascinated me so. Um, and it was so, it seemed so sincere. But they showed a lot of clips of Freddie Mercury toward the end of his life. And he was trying to work and he was trying to do things, you know, make a music video. And, and um, it was really sad, honestly, to, to, to see that because you knew he knew what was coming he was just trying to continue to work so that he could um, maybe keep his mind off it. I don't know. He loved to work. That was it. Yeah. No, it is sad because he, you know, he hid the fact that he had AIDS and and he was losing so much weight and stuff toward the end of his life. It was it was hard to watch that. Did he know he had AIDS at the, oh, uh, was it Farm Aid? Was it the Farm Aid show? The, the one that's often lauded as their comeback and... Uh, the show that that really just made them the world power they were. I, I do believe that he he knew at that point. Or was Live Aid one of those yeah. two? Yeah, but I'd, I'd have to look that up. I could be wrong yeah. about that. Yeah, and that's an amazing performance because not only was he great a great vocalist, but he was he could he could engage a crowd like almost no one else. Oh, I know, and that's what Brian May said about him too. Is that he could be in front of you know fifty thousand people. And he could grab the person in the very back row, you know, and bring him right into the show. I mean, he just had a way of, like, capturing people's attention no matter how many people were in front of him. Yeah, and going back to the point uh, where I believe, and you agreed with me, that this band, Queen, was greater than the sum of its parts. Individually, they weren't nearly as effective. Freddie Mercury had a couple, or at least one, but maybe two solo albums, and they did not perform at all. Right, yeah, yeah, they... um... You know, he did some stuff on his own, but again, you know, without the guys around him, That's it right. just isn't wasn't the same kind of magic at all. Yeah, well, you know, you you, you be, almost become, and everybody does this, regardless of whether you're a musician or you're an actor or you're a radio host, you can become a kind of a caricature of yourself if you don't have somebody else kind of pushing you, you know, their direction against your direction and somebody else pushing their direction against both of your directions, and that's what brings people into that I'll use a, a music uh, metaphor, groove. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know it's, it's always somebody, you know, competing against the other, or even John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Exactly. You know, they, they competed for who was going to write the best song. <laughs> and we know they only did about, wrote about a thousand of those. <laughs> They're amazing. My favorite group, <laughs> by the way. Um, Queen, what did they want to be? It, it seems as though early in their, their, uh, beginning success, they really were far edgier than they turned out being when they became a commercial success. Did they want to be like a, you know, a, an edgier Zeppelin um, influence type band or what, what do you think their intention was? You know, I think it was, it was totally driven by the songs they wrote and Freddie was, you know, one of the main writers. He wrote like on their greatest hits albums, album he wrote like 10 out of the out, out of the 17 songs yeah so i think it was i don't know if they set out to be anybody but themselves they were so unique in so many ways that i 
you know, I mean, try to compare Freddie with anybody else singing at that time. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly unique. And, and, and you know, again, using Bohemian Rhapsody as a pivotal song in their catalog, you listen to the uh, the the orchestration of the voices and Freddie Mercury, you know, overdubbed 10 times or 20 times or whatever it happens to be. All the guys had great voices in that band and they all added to that. But, um, you know, he had a he had a vision like kind of like a Brian Wilson thing where he, it was all in his head and he got it into that. He got it down on tape. He made it work. Yeah, yeah, no, I even read that um, uh, he used to like to write in the bathtub, and one time um, he had them bring in, like, a keyboard or something into the bathroom so he could get <laughs> some stuff down while he was thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, You know you're a success when you can have somebody bring a keyboard into the bathroom while you're in the tub so you don't have to get out to write a song. That's hilarious. Exactly. That's... <laughs> I do remember that's the epitome of being a rock star. I do remember, and, and it brings me back to this point where what did they want to be? I do remember a quote from Brian May. I think it was in that earlier documentary I mentioned where uh, you know they were making the music they were mer- making, and then Freddie Mercury brought in Killer Queen, and it was something completely different mm-hmm. from anything they had done. It was far more poppy. And, you know, had all these orchestrations and these vocals. And uh, Brian May uh, kind of scratched his head, is this really what we want to do? And then it was hugely successful. And that's, uh, and Brian uh, ended up saying, yeah, Freddie, you were right about that. <laughs> yeah, Freddie was right about a lot of stuff. Yeah, he really was. Uh, we're talking with Susan Messino tonight. Again, her website is her name, SusanMessino.com. Messino is spelled like casino with an M. A lot of books to your credit. If someone wanted to get an introduction to your work, Susan, particularly the rock and roll stuff, which book would you recommend they start with? That's a tough one because the first book I wrote, it's hard to get a copy of, and I'm working on getting it re-released, but it's called Rock and Roll Fantasy, My Life and Times with ACDC, Van Halen, Kiss, dot, dot, dot. And (laughs) it covers from 77 to 1980 and um, follows the... trajectory, sorry, of um, of ACDC's uh, rise to fame, but mm-hmm. also, you know, hanging out with Van Halen, Ted Nugent, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I mean, just, I got to meet everybody, all my idols I got to hang out with. That is so cool. That is really, really cool. I've had a lot of um, fortunate uh, meetings in the film world. I know a lot of film celebrities. Um, but one of the things I don't know a lot of is music, musician celebrities, my heroes. And I mean, I would love to meet Paul McCartney, uh, Ringo Starr, the two remaining Beatles. Uh, I do know Sean Lennon. Not, I wouldn't say well, but I know him well enough to say hello. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah he, I love him. He's so cool. Fortunately, he, he, the Lennon family has a, 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 a rural farm about uh, 20 miles from the, where I live. And my sister owns a bar restaurant in the town that I live in. And uh, they happen to like it. The Len- Sean and Yoko used to come in quite a bit, and they used to come hang out. So it was kind of cool. Oh, my goodness. That's awesome. <laughs> That's pretty cool, right? Um, yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the paranormal some more. As a paranormal researcher, what type of work do you enjoy doing the most? Is it going out and doing paranormal investigations? Is it is it more academic book work that you appreciate? Or is it... Um, Oh, you tell me what it is. Well, it's I'm always learning something. So I'm constantly learning, reading, studying, and I love the good old ghost stories, you know, that have endured for decades. Those are my favorite. Um, I live in Savannah now, which is one of the most haunted cities in the United States. That's right. 
And uh, I choose not to investigate here because um, I have enough <laughs> I have enough traffic to deal with as it is. <laughs> don't so need I, <laughs> I don't go looking for it. Right. But um, it's it, it's just fascinating to me, and I, I love everything about it. I love uh, finding out about it. I have you know investigated Deadwood, South uh, South Dakota, um, Bobby Mackey's in Wilder, Kentucky. Um, just you know lots of creepy places, and they're not always fun. I was just going to say that I was I was poisoned, if you will, at Bobby Mackey's. Poisoned? Uh, are, you, are you talking about a spiritual poisoning? Yes, yes, it was. It was uh, it was very upsetting because I went there, um, not taking it seriously. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the first night we got there, it was a meet and greet, and we were there for two nights. And uh, so I went there, you know, just ready to party. Keeping keeping it open like this is going to be fun, sure. and this entity, whatever it was, walked through me in the bar that night. Ooh, it you know it was like Ghostbusters, you know, and you feel slimed. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I shook it off. I laughed it off. I was like, oh, ew, like ew. That was I don't like that. And the next night we did the ghost um, investigation. There mm-hmm. was at least twenty, thirty people there broken into different groups. They were streaming online. Uh, they had to turn the heat off because of the sounds. It was freezing oh, in geez. February. Yeah. And we did the investigation. And, and, you know, one gentleman in the basement, you know, because the basement, there's a lot of provoking down there. Mm-hmm. People go down there and provoke and say, hey, you know, show me something. <laughs> and uh, that night, some guy um, got held up against the wall by something he couldn't see. Oh, wow. And then he ran out of the place in tears. And I went home that night or went back to the hotel with my friends. We stopped and ate. I had no alcohol in me. And about 5.30 that morning, I woke up like I had severe f- the flu. Really? And and that lasted. And I had to drive. We had to ride up uh, seven hours back to Wisconsin. I was that sick um, Monday, Tuesday, and I ended up in the ER Wednesday, severely dehydrated. Oh, wow. And they, they couldn't find anything wrong with me. And I, I thought that it was interesting that the, the new show, um, Portals to Hell, with um, Jack Osborne, mm-hmm. you know, Ozzy's yeah. son, mm-hmm. he and Katrina, his partner, they, they did a show on Bobby Mackey's. You probably look it up online. And uh, they have a disclaimer at the end of the show that within 48 hours, she was in, he was in L.A., she was in, I believe, Philadelphia. They both ended up in the ER. Wow. So... I do not recommend going to Bobby Mackey's. Hmm. Do you think if you if you had to go back to Bobby Mackey's and do it again, would you approach it differently? Are there do you have anything that you take into investigations that you consider to be some f- form of protection for yourself? Oh yeah, no. If I went back there, I would. I was not working on my protection at the time, and I tell everyone that when you go to a place like that, you need to, you know, surround yourself in light, mental light. And uh, and keep your vibration high because um, entities that want to mess with people always go after people that are not doing very well. And I wasn't doing very well when I went to Bobby's um, that time in my life. I was having a rough time in my life. And uh, so I was there for the picking. <laughs> Do you think there was something, um, and I know um, portals to hell might indicate the answer is yes to this, but do you think there's something demonic happening there? Oh, absolutely. 
Hmm. Yeah, there, there's so many hauntings on top of hauntings there because they have the Native Americans and they had the uh, Underground Railroad because they're right on the river. Um, there was a slaughterhouse there in the 1800s. Then there was a, um, a Latin club during the 50s where there was, you know, hits, mafia hits, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's so much layering, plus people go there and provoke. Right. And if you're going to do that, you're going you're gonna to get something for, from it. I, I don't recommend people investigate and provoke to see proof. It's, it's dangerous. I've... Uh... I've seen a bunch of shows that have uh, filmed there, um, and I've you know read a lot of accounts of folks working there or doing investigations there, and um, that's one of those places that I think you do need to take very very seriously if you're going to do an investigation or be there for anything like that. Um, you know there are there are places that you could say, and I'm just going to use some um, light language here, but you know can have fun activity and and you know you can get a little bit of an experience without feeling like you're in danger or uh um you know feeling threatened in any way but i keep hearing things about this about bobby mackey's that's just very different it is yeah there's so many people that have worked there that have had very very negative um experiences um hauntings at home possessions um suicidal thoughts lots of bad things have you seen the show on Amazon Prime, um, Hellier? I have not. No, I've heard of it, but I, I haven't seen it. The reason I bring it up is because one of the conclusions they make in two seasons of episodes, I think there's six episodes in each season of this, and I don't know if they plan on coming back or not, but they keep talking about synchronicities, synchronicities, and they almost drive that word to the point where you don't want to hear the word again, but... Um, but their points are valid, and you talk about synchronicities, too. Oh, yeah, everything. I mean, once you get into the flow of synchronicity in the universe, you can pull off almost anything. How does that work? Tell me what you mean by that. Well, synchronicity to me is being aware of things around you and little little messages and signs that most people don't notice, um, whether it's numbers. You know, a lot of people claim that, they keep seeing 1111 over and over again, and supposedly when you notice that, it's kind of the universe's way of showing you that you're right, you know, you're in the right place at the right time. And I always say, like, when you're late somewhere, let's say, you know, you're running late, you get there late, but maybe you just missed a car accident that you would have been stuck behind for an hour. So once you get into the flow of noticing that, life gets to be very interesting. You know what I've noticed? Manifesting goals. You know what I've noticed about numbers? And you tell me if this is synchronicity. When I go to, um, and you can't do that now in, in, in New York because all the bars are closed, but I used to go out, meet a friend for a beer now and then, and they have this lottery game that you know plays at bars in real time called, uh, um, oh my God, Quick, Quick Draw, it's called here in New York. And every time I walk in and I sit down, my numbers keep coming up. But then I play the game and they stop. <laughs> is that <laughs> is that some form of anti-synchronicity? Yeah, it could be. <laughs> it could be maybe like, no, we don't want you gambling, so you're not going to win anything. Oh, but then if they didn't want me gambling, why would they tease me with my numbers every time I'm in there until I actually play the ticket? 
it's so infuriating. It's not fair. No, it's, it's not, not fair. fair. <laughs> it's not it fair. Just, it doesn't make any sense because some people, you know, they, it, it's weird because um, somebody said one time that people that win the lottery are people that need a, are, are giving it given the chance to be better, to mm-hmm. be better people, mm-hmm. and usually it doesn't work out that way. Um, well, I'd like to have a chance at it. So if they just give me a shot and then I'll even write about my experiences and then they can judge whether uh, it made me better or not. Um, exactly. <laughs> so it, your book, um, that we talked about last time you were here, uh, the secrets of the universe, you talk about synchronicity, right? And you also talk about manifestation. Um, what inspired you to write that book specifically, especially after having written about rock and roll? Well, I always, you know, as I said, I've been into the paranormal my entire life. You know, when I was a kid, I used to read um, books by Hans Holzer because yeah. that was the only books you could find. Yeah. And uh, and it's just, it's it's an amazing, you know, the synchronicity and everything. I, I just wanted, I call it my primer to the paranormal because it's seven chapters on seven different subjects. And they're kind of like a little sample of like, here, check this out. You know, are you interested? Um, you know, so so it's kind of my introduction uh, way of um, inspiring people. And my my life has been a series of synchronicities and following, you know, the right direction at the right time. I've been very lucky with that. But I like to inspire people to do the same because we can manifest our own reality. It's just most people don't realize that. You talked about synchronicity. You say that we miss, you know, we miss the signs, or many people miss the signs. They don't really understand uh, what they're either looking for or what they're being shown. How, what are ways that we can be more alert and pay more attention to these synchronicities? I think you know, just paying attention to like the numbers around you and even the signs. You know, I get a, a kick out of when I go on a road trip. I read the the big semis that go by. And it, it's almost funny, you know, it's kind of like um, Jim Carrey in, uh, you know, when he plays God, and he's asking for signs and the truck in front of him is full of signs. <laughs> he doesn't see that they're all signs and they're, give me a sign. And well, we're giving you every sign we can think of. Um, <laughs> so I wanted people to become curious and, and explore, you know, if you're into numerology, um, mental light therapy, you know, working with your chakras, um, I did uh, numbers on Bon Scott, Malcolm Young, and Angus Young, which is really cool because they all have the same combination in different parts of their charts, which makes it, you know, you know, very logical that yeah. they, they fit together so well. But, um, you know, yeah, and then I have ghost adventures, uh, past lives, you know, we, I talk about that a lot. So it's, it's just kind of, you know, a little uh, introduction to the things I believe in. Let's talk more. We talk about the synchronicity part. Talk more about the manifestation part. What what do you when you, manifestation can mean a lot of different things. In terms of what you wrote about in the book, what does it mean? It means that you create your own reality with your thoughts and your words. And most people don't realize that, you know, words are very powerful because they're a vibration. So what you say and what you think is part of what you see in your reality, like people, you know, that complain all the time and they think, you know, oh my God, my life's never going to get better, this is wrong, that's wrong. Well, they, they keep getting that because that's what they talk about. And I like to say that the universe is like a, a computer that doesn't judge. They just, it takes the information that you put out and sends it back to you. It matches what you're thinking about. 
So if you're thinking about failure and you're, you know, you're never going to get anywhere, that's, that's what you're going to get because you've already decided that's the outcome. So when I was a kid, I used to read biographies like crazy. And the reason why is that I wanted to know what made people different. How did they make their dreams come true? That was, I wanted to know the secret. And there's one thing between all the people that I've read about over the years from everyone from Abraham Lincoln to, you know, Benjamin Franklin to, you know, Madame Curie, Amelia Earhart, they all had one thing in common, and it's one word, and it's belief. They believed they could do it. That's it. That's it. If is you that, can believe you can do something, you're going to do it. Is that another way to um, say posi- the power of positive thinking? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. And, and it's hard. You know, I, I battle with it every day. We're in a polarity world, you know, negative, positive. There's good and bad and everything. And to stay positive all the time is, is a job. <laughs> yeah, especially this year. Yeah, especially this year that we've we've uh, you know had our more than our share of challenges in 2020. That's for sure. Yeah, it's been quite the year, to say the least. <laughs> what about dreams? Um, you know, we often look at dreams as sometimes messages that come from where we don't even know where. Sometimes uh, inspiration. In fact, we use the word dream to as synonymous with with uh, you know our goals and our ambitions and our you know the best case scenario. Um, but you 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 link manifestation and dreams too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've had lots of prophetic dreams. Um, people, you know, that I haven't seen in a long time, or people that have passed before. Um, I get messages on even when I wanted to know if I was going to get my book deal or not. I had some crazy dreams about that. <laughs> that was telling me in so many ways that, yes, you know, you're going to get this deal. It's going to happen. Um, so dreaming to me is is always fascinating. As an author and a paranormal researcher and somebody who has had, you know, some pretty high-profile friendships um, you must have come across some pretty good stories. Let's talk about some uh, paranormal stories. Anything that you might consider spooky? Ooh, spooky with rock and roll, or just spooky and no? General? It doesn't. Ha- does not have to be about anything to do with rock and roll. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, um, I saw a full body apparition at the Titanic exhibit in the year two thousand. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty. Yes, that, I did. That's a very interesting one. Tell us what you saw. I know. Well, my son, um, I write about it in my book, but my son went through a past life memory of being on the Titanic. It lasted from four to six years old, two years of it. Mm -hmm. It was very intense. Um, He had night terrors. He drew pictures of the Titanic. He knew everything about the Titanic. Susan, he was four, he he was having these, these, um, uh, memories surface while he was four to six years old? Wow. Yes, between four and six. That's that's really young to be able to handle some of what I would imagine could have been very frightening images. Oh, it was it was insane. It, he saw the end of the movie. A babysitter let him watch the end of the Titanic on HBO. Mm-hmm. We were out, mm-hmm. and we came home, and she said, yeah, he got up, he watched the end of the movie, and I'm thinking, oh, great, he got to watch all those people die. That's wonderful. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the next day, instead of like being traumatized by that in particular, he was obsessed with why it sunk. 
and he kept he was drawing. He started he in the first two weeks he probably painted over fifty pictures of the Titanic. Wow. He's, everything pencil drawings, watercolor, all from memory. He was never looking at a picture of the boat. But he was obsessed with this, and when they brought the exhibit to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago in 2000, or in the year 2000, we decided to take him there and to see if that would help, you know, maybe turn the corner for him. And he, you know, all the other kids ran around the museum like kids. My son had to look at everything, so we were in there for a couple hours. And when we came up on the boilers, which he used to cry. He used to wail over the fact that the boiler room, the men died first, and it wasn't fair because, the, you know, once they had the emergency, the, the doors came down, they were locked in, they couldn't get out. And so he used to just wail about that. And so we're looking at a boiler, and I'm thinking, oh, here we go, you know. And there's a boiler with a curtain on it, spotlight, mirrors on both sides. Very cool. I look over to the left of me, and I see an oil painting, a life-size oil painting of a man shoveling coal into a boiler. And I think to myself, wow, they really went all out on this exhibit. You know, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. And we got closer. We were with a big bunch of group of people, you know, that are kind of slowly pushing their way through. And I get up to this painting, and I look, look right up at him, and he turns and looks at me like, who are you? Oh, wow. Scared the living daylights out of me, and then I close my eyes for a second, and I open my eyes, I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and there's no man, and there's no painting. Oh, wow. And my daughter saw it, too, so I wasn't the only one. Thank God. Yeah. Um, but I saw, yeah, a full-body apparition, and he looked at me like I scared him. That's, that's what was really weird. Yeah, that's amazing. That's yeah, amazing. it was pretty cool. <laughs> did, you, did you ever determine what... Um, role your son's past life had with the Titanic? Was he an adult on the Titanic? Was, well, do we know? You know Did you ever find the, out? The, 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 the amount of information that he had in his ability to draw, which he is an artist, a, a visual developer now, his artwork is beyond amazing, but um, some believe that he could have been Thomas Andrews, who designed all the ships for the White Star Line. Right. And he went on every maiden voyage, and he went down with the ship that night, even though they offered him a place on the lifeboats. Wow. Very sad. What, but, do, you th- um, yeah. what, do, you, what do you think, uh, it brings up another point for me, um, what do you think about the concept of past lives? If let's, let's use your son as an example. If, in fact, your son was remembering a past life, therefore he was the same soul uh, on the Titanic, as he is in this current life, in this current body. Um, if people have that ability to have successive lives like that, then what are the ghosts? What are the spirits? I know that, you know, that it, it really makes you wonder sometimes because um, I think that, too, that, that our souls are multidimensional or multifaceted, if you will. And I think that a life that you left behind and you appear as a ghost, you can do that at the same time as your soul has incarnated into another life. You can do both? I think you can do both. I think it's because I don't think that, you know, it is hard to believe or hard to to understand what happens to the soul when you do incarnate. You know, does that person that you knew from the past, are they still there in some way? Right. 
So it it, it is weird. I mean, it's it, it's always like I said. I'm always learning something new. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if there were any hard and fast answers, we wouldn't have a whole lot more to talk about. The the thing about that makes the paranormal and these discussions so interesting is that we don't have any firm answers. We can only offer some speculation and maybe some educated guessing and uh, as we continue to find answers. Exactly, yeah. I mean, and you know, not that many people come back and say, hey, come on, it's great. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, walk this way. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's always uh, very fascinating. Although frequently people that have near-death experiences that visit the other side, even though briefly, will come back and say it was the most uh, beautiful feeling, amazing experience, uh, nothing but love, and uh, they're no longer afraid to go back there. Yeah, you do. You hear a lot of that, and I have also heard people that have talked about seeing very scary things and definitely not liking what they saw, but again, I think that when you do transition, it has a lot to do with your state of mind and what you believe in. I think that, you know, uh, people that feel like they're going to be punished after they die or whatever will create that because that's what they believe in. So I believe I'm going to have a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I always say don't mourn for me because I'm going right back to 1960 Hamburg, Germany and getting drunk with John Lennon. Oh, that would be so amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's my first trip right there. Wow, we just passed John Lennon's what would have been his 80th birthday. Yeah, on the ninth. Yeah, yep. yeah. What? What? It's, and, and to think that he basically he's been uh, he gone as long as he was alive. Um, that's that's uh, another sad milestone. It is. It's hard to believe that you know it's forty years ago and yeah, crazy. Tell me, I I asked this in the beginning of the show, um, but I'm going to ask again. You've never made an effort to say do a paranormal investigation specific to your rock and roll interests, like go to, I don't know, uh, Jim Morrison's grave or, and, you know, do a, do an EVP session or anything like that. I, you know, I would like to do that. I've talked about um, one place I want to go to is the surf ballroom where Buddy Holly played his last show. Oh yeah. That's supposed to be very haunted. And uh, so there are places that I, I haven't gone to yet that I would love to do something like that. But some of the really scary places, like there's um, the South Charleston Jail, which is only a couple hours from me. Mm-hmm. And I've had friends ask me to go, and I'm not stepping one foot into that building. <laughs> <laughs> but the rock and roll stuff, I mean, yeah, that there's a great picture of the ghost of Jim Morrison at his gravesite that somebody got caught. They captured him. And it's very cool. It's oh, wow. like you can see him very clearly standing by his grave. Was that a recent picture, or has that been around eh, for a while? I think it's been a few years. I'll, when I, I'll look it up. If I find it, I'll send it to you. Oh, that'd be awesome. It, it is pretty that. cool. Yeah, definitely. What Of, of all the uh, rock and roll friendships that you've had over the course of the years, the people you've met, who's somebody or a group that you didn't get a chance to meet that you'd really wish you had or hope you still can or want to or whatever? That's a tough one because I've I wouldn't mind meeting Led Zeppelin. Um, I have never met them, and uh, I did go to Paul McCartney's press conference, and he called on me for a question, and oh, I wow. froze. <laughs> so I did, Paul McCartney actually looked right at me and pointed and talked, and, and that was it. I froze. Oh, wow. I couldn't move. <laughs> what, when was this? When did that happen? 
That was uh, 1990 in Chicago at the uh, end of his uh, first tour with his band, and they had done like 113 dates, and that was the last night of the tour. Oh, wow. I actually saw him in Philadelphia in that tour. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, was, I ended up at the press conference not believing that it was okay for me to be there, you know, because CBS, ABC, MTV, everybody was there. And I'm thinking, yeah, they'll throw you out before it starts. And I ended up in the front row, and at the end, Paul actually asked me. I had my, my hand up, and he said, you know, blonde lady at the end in the front <laughs> row. And when he looked at me, that was it. I couldn't remember my name. I couldn't remember where I was. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I would probably have the same reaction. <laughs> I blew it. I just wow. completely blew my chance to talk to Paul McCartney. Wow. Your books are available uh, on your website. Uh, there's information about not just your books, but your uh, all of your work. And the website is susanmacino.com. But if somebody wanted to buy the books, Amazon, right? And, and, and yep. You can, is yeah, it Amazon, li- or you know, if they want a signed copy, just uh, email me on my website. And I'm also on Facebook, easy to find. Any projects in the works? Well, I am working on a book of my life called Stories to Tell. Oh, cool. And I have a billion of those, so it's going to take me a while. And I am working on an essay on uh, Tutti Frutti by Little Richard for the Library of Congress. Oh, very interesting. That's great. I have to ask you this question. Just be, the, the Howard Stern in me is going to come out a little bit here. But have okay. you ever witnessed any of these rock and roll friends of yours do something that they probably wouldn't want anybody to know about? Yeah, absolutely. Are you going to write about those? Any of those? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> a friend to the end. That's, and you know why? That's awesome. It's because at 43 years later, ACDC still talks to me. There you go. That's that's smart, and that's why. That's that, you were you were you. They trusted you enough to have you in their confidence, so you shouldn't betray them. That's 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 wise. Well, I have to say, I could have scooped them about fifty times in the last twenty years, but I never do. What I do won't th- do what it. What do you think about their the the new work they're doing, the new studio work? Right, right. They've got an album coming out, don't they? Yeah, yeah. They released their uh, their first um, single today, "Shot mm-hmm. in the Dark" video mm-hmm. of that. And the album's coming out on November 13th. And right now I'm currently promoting my updated edition of the story of ACDC, Let There Be Rock, that just came out a month ago. Terrific, yeah. You know, one of the, one of the sad things about um, the digital age is I think it's, it's uh, you know, made it more difficult for the music industry as a whole. And uh, so we're not getting the volume of stuff that, at least that I remember us getting, you know, when, when vinyl was the dominant medium. It's I, I can't imagine what you do now to to break into the business. It's it's, it's changed. A, yeah, so break, much. breaking into it is one thing, and then being able to make money at it is another. You know, I mean, as you know, uh, you know, revenue to the music industry has fallen by like ninety percent. It's something uh, unbelievable. Yeah, it's. I feel so bad, not only just for the performers, but the people that work yeah. on the road. You know, and that's why people and that's, um, you know, and that's why when people complain that, you know, to go see, I don't know, pick a band, I don't whatever, even Paul McCartney. I mean, some of those tickets were in the thousands of dollars to see Paul McCartney and people complain about that. But the bottom line is these artists now, their only source of revenue is essentially their touring. Well, and then then actually they if they're lucky, they break even on the tour. They make their money from merchandise. Right. That's right. 
Good point. But Paul McCartney, in my opinion, and God bless him, I love you, Sir Paul. <laughs> but you're a billionaire, and I'm not. Yeah. And uh, I think a hundred, hundred and fifty bucks for a ticket should be about right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'll agree with you, and I don't want Paul McCartney getting mad at me. But we'll just leave it there. I, I don't care. <laughs> so. <laughs> Susan, thank you so much for being with me tonight. It's always so much fun talking to you. I'm glad you agreed to come back, and this won't be the last time we have you on. Oh, anytime, JV. I loved it. It was really fun. Thank you so much. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.